Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher Nathan Nobis. Uh, Many animals can experience pain, many animals can suffer, animals can be harmed, things can go worse for animals. So, basically, you know, you think about what makes actions uh, toward us wrong seems to be because of various features of the action, and these features seem to be uh, possessed by many animals as well. That sort of puts animals in the moral ballgame, and we have to think about how they're treated. If you like the show and want it to continue, please write a kind review on iTunes or send the link to a friend. And now, my interview with Nathan Nobis. Dr. Nathan Nobis is a moral philosopher at Morehouse College in Atlanta, and while his dissertation concerned meta-ethics, he has also written many papers on applied ethics. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm uh, glad to be here. Nathan, it is relatively rare, I think, for a philosopher to do significant work in both meta-ethics and applied ethics. Why do you think that is, and what are the advantages of doing lots of research on both of those topics? Maybe I should first say a little bit about what applied ethics and meta-ethics are. Sure. Most people, when they think about ethics, they might think about uh, what's often called applied ethics, which would be sort of the discussion of, uh, say, contemporary moral problems or issues, abortion, capital punishment, whether uh, we should do anything to help uh, poor people, the treatment of animals, biomedical ethics, all sorts of things like that. Very practical, concrete issues, stuff like that. Meta-ethics is a bit more abstract. It sort of steps away from what people are doing when they're thinking about whether particular actions or policies are right or wrong. And they sort of go to a level where they think about, well, what exactly are we doing when we're making these kinds of particular moral judgments? When when you make a moral judgment, is it ever sort of literally true or not? And if so, what kind of things would make it true? This leads into questions about, you know, what sort of reasons can be given in favor of moral judgments? Can there be moral knowledge? Well, I mean, I guess the probably more common view is that moral judgments can be true sometimes. Other people think, well, maybe not. First, it's not particularly obvious what would make them true. I mean, to sort of say the table is wood or the table is heavy, I understand what would make claims like that true, but people wonder. Moral claims, that's kind of weird. I'm not really sure how they could be made true by anything in the world. And other people think, well, actually, they're not even the kind of things that could be true or false. Like, not everything we say is either true or false. If you issue commands or give orders or ask questions, those kinds of sentences are neither true nor false. So some people have argued that moral judgments are sort of more like that. They're more like commands or expressions of emotion or expressions of uh, how you want the world to be rather than claims that are true or false. So this is the distinction between applied ethics and meta-ethics. Mm-hmm. With that in mind, meta-ethics and applied ethics are fairly different. Your question began by observing that it seems like, among many philosophers, typically those who are interested in ethics, they might work in meta-ethics, they might work in applied ethics, but perhaps um, doing both might be a little rare. And I'm not real sure about that. I mean, I guess I've never done any sort of detailed study, but that does seem sort of plausible. 
think the people who are typically most well-known for doing applied ethics haven't really written a whole lot about meta-ethics, and the people that are typically most well-known for doing meta-ethics don't do so much in applied ethics. I have a couple thoughts about that. Um, I guess going from meta-ethics to applied ethics, if one holds a meta-ethical position, that is that there are no moral truths, there are no moral facts, uh, perhaps moral judgments are sort of expressions of emotion or something like that, then it would seem to make some sense that you wouldn't really be so much interested in practical ethics problems. Yeah, it'd be like an atheist theologian or something. Yeah, right, yeah. I, I'm not really sure how a moral irrealist or anti-realist would react to this. I think they usually sort of want to soften the blow of their views in certain ways and sort of try to explain that, well, you know, I have this kind of abstract view about the nature of morality, but it doesn't really influence practical daily life in terms of my make moral judgments so much. Whether this sort of attitude ultimately makes sense, I'm not really sure. So if you think morality is kind of bunk of some kind, you're probably not going to be so much interested in it. There are a few meta-ethicists who tend to be realists who are strongly interested in moral problems and have published quite a bit on moral and social issues. There's a philosopher, Russ Schaefer-Landau, who's done a lot of work in meta-ethics and practical ethics. Michael Humer has also done a lot of work in meta-ethics and practical ethics. So those are a couple that come to mind. And it seems to me like the combination goes together pretty well in that, you know, if you are interested in moral problems and you're interested in trying to figure out, well, are there better and worse ways to think about them, that inevitably is going to lead to sort of more abstract questions about, well, what exactly are we doing when we're making moral judgments and what makes them better and worse and can they be better and worse? And this will uh, lead to more engagement of abstract issues. And uh, historically, philosophers haven't been so much concerned about practical, concrete moral issues. People tend to think that, say, only in the last 30 years have uh, philosophers become much more practical in these sorts of ways. Maybe maybe things will change and uh, you sort of start finding more and more philosophers who do both and see benefit to doing both. Can I ask you if, uh, from your point of view, would you have any thoughts about the question you just asked me? Well, it seems to me that applied ethics should at least depend on the meta-ethics to some degree. I mean, if you've got a meta-ethics that says that the only type of value in the universe comes from desires, then I think certain conclusions in applied ethics are going to be very hard to come by. Whereas if you've got, say, a divine command theory of meta-ethics, then just about anything could fit with that theory, uh, just depending on how you conceive of God. Uh, and th there are lots more things to say about that. But I think if you've got an applied ethics that is divorced from meta-ethics, then mm -hmm. you can talk about whether or not certain arguments work. You know, you can supply even new arguments, like in uh, Defense of Abortion by, uh, oh, who was that now? 1972. Thompson? Yeah, Judith Jarvis Thompson. So you can do that kind of thing in applied ethics, but if you are just evaluating the arguments without assuming anything about what it is that makes moral claims true, then you aren't really giving the whole story of how your moral conclusion is justified. You're just considering whether or not particular arguments work. 
And so I think, uh-huh. for me at least, applied ethics has to be grounded in a meta-ethics. If you're going to support the full conclusion that X is right or X is wrong or X is good or X is bad. Uh-huh. These distinctions are a little blurry. I mean, the distinction between applied ethics and meta-ethics is sometimes a bit hard to make, but there's another one called normative ethics, and it kind of sounds like what you're thinking of as meta-ethics might often be called normative ethics. Well, I think that applied ethics has to be grounded in a normative ethics, and normative ethics has to be grounded in a meta-ethics. Oh, okay. Good. Yeah, so uh, the sort of standard line is that sort of normative ethics is concerned about kind of more abstract principles of uh, here's what it is for an action to be wrong in general, here's what it is for an action to be right in general. Theories in normative ethics would be various kinds of consequentialism, various kinds of Kantian ethics, uh, various kinds of contractarian ethics. And uh, it's typically these sorts of principles that might be applied to practical cases right. to get particular judgments. Yeah. And I think those normative rules as well should be derived from a particular meta-ethics. For example, if you're going to go with a sort of virtue ethics sort of normative Uh claim, then what the meta-ethics has to say about, say, robustness of character is going to matter. If it turns out that we don't have very robust characters and that we're mostly situational in our judgments and our action, then that's going to be a difficulty from the meta-ethical level or even the moral psychology level for such right. a normative theory, and therefore for the uh, uh, conclusions in applied ethics that follow from that normative theory. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling like the various labels and categorizations of uh, issues are already sort of getting in the way, <laughs> because these issues can sort of so easily... Uh, be interrelated, uh, one issue can lead you to another, and so on and so forth. Well, today, Nathan, mostly I want to speak with you about applied ethics, but as we were saying earlier, applied ethics seems to assume that one is a realist about morality. Could you just briefly tell us first why you're a realist about morality? I think most people are realists about morality, and by that I mean to say that they think that moral claims are sometimes true. To say that is to first to say that they're the kind of thing that are either true or false and that they're sometimes true. So uh, this first bit is about the sort of grammar or semantics or the meanings of moral terms. So to say they can be either true or false is to say, well, they're not commands. They're not expressions of emotion. They're sort of straightforward claims that can be true or false. Um, second bit is that they're sometimes true. Now, by that definition of moral realist, are you including relativists then? It's just that a relativist would say that what moral claims are, can be true about are, you know, the opinions of the speaker or the opinions of the culture of the speaker or something like that. So you would consider relativists oh, uh, moral realists or no? Good, good. That reminds me that I would want to add a third ingredient. So it's not merely you're a realist, uh, not just if uh, you think moral claims are true or false, and you think they're sometimes true. To be a realist, you also probably have to think something about what makes the claims true, what makes moral claims true. And one way to do it, to wind up in what's typically uh, understood to be a realist camp, is think that they're not made true by anybody's beliefs or attitudes. So that would kind of rule out relativism. 
So suppose you think, well, yeah, torturing babies is wrong, but that's just because we all think it's wrong, or my society thinks it's wrong. That would make the truth of it dependent upon somebody's or the group's belief, and at the very least, realists typically want to say, uh, that's not the kind of view we want. We want the truth maker for our judgments to be something else. It would also rule out some versions of theistic ethics which ground moral value in the attitudes of God. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. I think uh, discussions of what's called the Euthyphro problem, basically sort of asking, well, suppose God commands that you don't do something. It's wrong for you to do it. Is it wrong for you to do it because God says so? Or does God say it's wrong for you to do it because it's wrong for you to do it? Many people ever since Socrates have thought that, well, if it's wrong for you to do this because and only because God says don't do it, that ultimately makes morality kind of arbitrary because it seems like, well, God could have just as well commanded you do the opposite thing. And there's nothing that sort of prevents that or nothing that would make that wrong. You go the other way, however, and think, well, God would command you to say not torture babies because torturing babies is wrong. Well, why would God command that? Well, because it's just wrong. It's a uh, sort of independent moral fact, independent moral truth. God is an all-knowing being, would know this, and so report on that fact. I guess there, there are some ways that you could view sort of divine command ethics as a kind of irrealism. On the other hand, perhaps kind of necessary facts about God would change that. Um, so I think you've given three conditions that define what you mean by a moral realist. Mm -hmm. Why are you a moral realist? Well, I am a uh, moral realist basically because if you look at the arguments against realism, it seems to me that they imply or support a kind of irrealism or anti-realism about value generally. So to explain a little bit, people typically object to a realist understanding of morality by arguing that, well, morality or moral judgments have uh, various kinds of features, and since they have these features, they're just never, never literally true. So people point out facts about sort of diversity, there's a lot of disagreement about morality, and since there's disagreement about morality, moral judgments probably are not true. After all, if they were true, people argue that more people would see them, there would be less diversity, less disagreement, so on and so forth. People have often also argued that moral judgments have a kind of motivational impact to them. If you say something's wrong, but you just have sort of no pull against doing that action, you really wouldn't be saying it's wrong, and any sort of judgment that has that sort of pull just can't be a belief. It has to be an expression of something, and so uh, those sorts of expressions are neither true nor false, or not the state of mind that is sort of either true or false. So people point to various features of moral judgments and say, since they have those, and anything having those features is sort of uh, not true, moral judgments aren't true. And what I did in my dissertation five years, six years ago or so, was basically provided a counterexample to this premise that says any judgment with these features is never true, 
Well, I pointed out that all sorts of intellectual and scientific judgments seem to have these features as well. Morality is often about what you should and shouldn't do from a moral point of view, but it seems like there's uh, questions about you, what you should and shouldn't believe and reason from uh, an intellectual point of view, an epistemic point of view, a scientific point of view. But there's these questions about should and shouldn't. And I argue that it seems that these shoulds and shouldn'ts have the same or often have the same sort of features moral judgments have. But since we tend to think that these kinds of shoulds, should claims are sometimes true, that's a counterexample to the general premise. The sort of typical arguments against realism have a false premise. Another way to put it is kind of call it a sort of sane boat argument. Mm-hmm. Some people want to put moral judgments in a boat, so to speak, because they have these sort of features and, you know, they're like this, so they're problematic. So uh, they're in this class. Well, what I did was pointed out that lots of things, lots of kinds of judgments seem to have these same kinds of features, but we seem to be able to accept them as literally true. So that undercuts this kind of argument against it. And if there's a way that sort of scientific, intellectual, epistemic shoulds and oughts and musts and so on, uh, these kinds of value judgments, if those can be true, then presumably so can moral judgment somehow. Now, Nathan, I've always agreed with you that I don't find the arguments against moral realism to be very persuasive. Uh huh. But nevertheless, I was an error theorist for quite a while, an, an, meaning an anti-realist about morality, uh-huh. and am still very partial to that view because I saw a lack of positive support for the claims of moral realism. And since the moral realist is the one making positive existence claims, I think that the moral realist has the burden of proof. And too many of the moral philosophers that I read, I thought, weren't able to support that burden of proof. What do you think about all that? Huh. Yeah, I think this has been recognized by others as, uh, I don't know if I want to call it a deficiency, because um, I don't think other people call it necessarily a deficiency. It might be sort of like, well, there's not a whole lot we can do. But don't you get sort of positive arguments by uh, sort of pointing out, well, why should you believe that there are are literal moral truths? Well, because if you deny this, all these things follow, and some of these things seem to be false, and it seems like some of these things we've got excellent reasons to think are false. So, therefore, we should believe there are moral truths. Well, but what types of things are you thinking of? Are you thinking of, like, um, it's false that rape is morally good, therefore moral realism is given support or something like that? Yeah, you could go that way. I guess the simple deal would be either some kind of moral realism is true or it's not. And if it's not true, then sort of nothing's really wrong, but some things are really wrong. So some kind of moral realism is true. But maybe other ways to go at it, which I think people have maybe focused on a bit more, would be, uh, say, the phenomena of it seems like we can be mistaken. It seems like we can be in error. If we can be mistaken in our moral views, that sort of suggests that we're uh, sort of missing the mark, so to speak. And people have argued that, well, if various kinds of irrealisms were true, there would be no mark to miss. So the idea that we can be mistaken doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So we shouldn't accept that. Um, I should mention 
moral realist, irrealist, uh, meta-ethics debates can be much more sophisticated than, than what I'm presenting. In the last, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years, people have come up with sort of much more sophisticated and nuanced views than were discussed prior to them. It's, it's not as sort of clean cut as it used to be with the sort of logical positivists and Hare and Mackey and even early Gilbert Harmon. Sure. Well, I do want to talk to you about applied ethics, but let me just press just a bit more on moral realism. You said that sure. one uh, reason that's given in support of moral realism is that it sure seems like we can be mistaken about moral facts, or it sure seems like there are certain moral truths like rape is wrong or something like that. You focused on the uh -huh. former of those. But to me, I, I don't find those kinds of arguments persuasive for the exact same reason that I don't find theistic arguments persuasive. Uh, theists will often say, well, it's really intuitive that God exists, or it's really intuitive that there must be a designer for this place or something like that, and I just reject those out of hand. I don't think our intuitions have anything to say on the subject, or we don't have any reason to uh, trust our intuitions on the subject, given our evolutionary history, something Sharon Street has argued. So some people argue that various kinds of irrealisms imply sort of moral progress is not possible. Right. And moral error is not possible. Right. Well, here's a question. Are people or should people be more confident that moral progress and moral decline are possible and actual, or should they be more confident in some abstract philosophical theory? So basically, some of these arguments say, look, you've got better reason to think there's progress than this kind of expressivism is true or something like that. So you should reject this kind of irrealism. It's not just saying, oh, it's just intuitive. It's an argument. Well, but what's the support that there is moral progress? Is that just that it's intuitive that there's moral progress, or what's the support for that? I, I wouldn't want to say it's sort of merely intuitive. Well, think about the slavery example. So you could describe slavery. Slavery is like this, and involves this, so on and so forth. Uh, suppose this ends in a society, and uh, these bad things that were happening to these people are no longer happening. They have uh, increased positive opportunities, so on and so forth. They're not being harmed in various sorts of ways. They're uh, being uh, given greater respect, so on and so forth. Wouldn't that be enough to try to show that there's progress? Certainly that there's progress. Um, I think the anti-realist would say that he agrees with all of those premises, but that he's saying that morality isn't an appropriate term for that. Yes, we there's you know more respect, there is equality, there's all those kinds of things. But the whole point of the anti-realist project is that that's not grounded in some kind of objective, intrinsic moral value. But of course, most people believe that there is objective, intrinsic moral value, and so that they see the increase of respect and the increase of equality as moral progress. So that's how the anti-realists would explain why most people intuitively believe in moral progress. Um, but they're saying, well, that's because they have this false assumption that we talked about earlier. Right. And why is it false? Well, in my case, if I were to argue for anti-realism, I would just say because we don't have any good reasons to believe that it's true, that the realist hasn't given good support for the case. Well, here, I guess what I'd prefer to ask is, does the elimination of slavery make a society better or not? Well, it makes a society better 
if you start with certain assumptions about what better means. But the anti-realist is saying that there's no ground for the assumption of moral betterness. It's okay. better. I mean, let's let's say if we just start from uh, we define that better means fulfilling more desires. Then, yeah, the abolishment of slavery is better according to that definition. But the moral anti-realist is saying that there's no particular reason to say that there's like some objective fact about the universe that fulfilling desires is intrinsically valuable. Huh. Okay. So, uh, I mean, another way I could ask a question is: uh, Would ending slavery make things better, or just just different? Well, again, it, it's uncontroversially makes things different. And then as far as making it better, it makes it better with respect to certain things relative to certain values. But the moral anti-realist is going to say, again, there isn't some objective intrinsic fact about the universe that fulfilling desires is morally better or that uh, equality is morally better. They're going to say that if you start with those values, then fine, but there's no ground to choose those values over other values. I mean, you're just, you're just kind of somewhat arbitrarily making a list of the values that you hold and saying that they're intrinsic to the universe somehow. That last part is kind of like a psychologizing of the moral realist rather than giving an argument, um, but it's just uh, that's where the moral anti-realist is coming from. Suppose you think that, you know, you, you really should have a good argument for a view, for whatever sort of view you hold. And, you know, if there's an objection to it, you really ought to be able to respond to it. Mm -hmm. Suppose you think like think things like that. It seems like you can say also that, look, I don't see where that's sort of written on the universe or whatever, that you should have reasons for what you think or that, you know, if you don't find reasons for something, you shouldn't accept it. Those things to me seem to be sort of equally mysterious as morality. And the uh, point of my dissertation was basically that, well, if you can accept shoulds like that, then it seems like you should be able to accept moral shoulds too. If you can find sort of intellectual or epistemic value, then uh, why not moral value too? So in asking you that question, though, it's trying to sort of lure you down a little trap. <laughs> well, and actually, uh, I agree with that thrust of your dissertation and uh, have been linking various people to your dissertation all over the place so that I can support that point because I actually am a moral realist. But uh -huh. my positive arguments for moral realism are very different than the positive arguments offered by other more moral realists. And I don't think it's enough to say that the arguments against moral realism would make us anti-realists about other types of normativity that are less controversial. Uh, I think mm -hmm. the moral realist also has a burden of proof to explain how it is that moral facts in particular uh, exist or are binding or something like that. And that's where I don't think that arguments about, well, it seems like we have moral progress or mm -hmm. it seems like rape is wrong or it seems like we can be wrong about moral facts. Um, that's where those arguments, those positive arguments in favor of realism don't persuade me. And I would want to look towards uh, other arguments. Now we finally get to applied ethics, but let's talk about this first. Sam Harris recently gave a TED talk about the science of morality. Well, the meaning of the word scientific is less than clear. People use it in different ways. Just about everybody thinks that science, empirical information, is often highly relevant 
to uh, thinking about moral issues. Mm-hmm. You know, suppose you're thinking about, well, what, if anything, can and should be done about the world's most poor people? This is going to require a lot of information about their conditions, about what can be done for them, about what are what are all the existing programs, how effective are they, how would this be measured if we did this, what do you think would happen, how do uh, economies work, what do we know about that. So all this information would be necessary, but it certainly wouldn't be sufficient because somehow this information or relevant parts of it are basically kind of going to have to be conjoined with moral principles mm-hmm. that will tell you, well, if a situ- situation is like this, then it would be permissible to do that. If a situation is like this, say th- these three conditions are met, doing this action would be obligatory, so on and so forth. And for the information, you know, you got to get the information from observations, science, and experiments, things like that. Uh, often it can be complicated. Often uh, scientific experts can disagree. So the science, of course, is often relevant. But in terms of the uh, finding and applying sort of relevant moral principles, science doesn't do that. So one of the things that was mentioned in that talk was he mentioned something like the idea that the well-being of conscious beings matters morally. Right. That's not a claim from science. Yeah. You don't go to a biology class, a physics class, a chemistry class, and find anything about that. But, uh, yeah, so the point is that various moral principles don't come from science. So insofar as that part of moral thinking doesn't come from science, thinking that ethics can be totally scientific seems to me to be a mistake. Well, Nathan, let's talk about animals. Western religions have tended to draw a strict line between animals and humans so that humans possess lots of moral value, whereas animals have almost no value, so it's okay to kill them for hunting or sacrifice or even fun. But Eastern religions have generally taken animals in a very different light. Jainism, for example, says that even dust mites are morally significant, and we should avoid killing them if possible. So do you think that modern science makes one of these approaches more plausible? In the past 30 to 40 years, professional philosophers have started thinking a lot more about how animals ought to be treated. And this is a controversial issue even now, decades later. And I think one helpful way to think about controversial issues is to think about non-controversial issues or less controversial issues. And if we think about the ethics of sort of human-to-human relationships, if we think about the various ways that we could be treated wrongly, here I'll even say sort of intuitively the sort of worst ways that we could be treated wrongly. Mm -hmm. If we made a list of gruesome actions that have been done to humans by humans and ask, what do these all have in common? Why are they wrong? We might very easily quickly observe that, you know, somebody is being caused to experience pain or suffering or deprivation or some kind of bad stuff, harm. If you start with that case, people have argued that, well, if it's wrong to treat humans in certain ways because it will cause them to suffer Uh, cause them pain, cause them harm, be bad for them, make things worse for them, so on and so forth, then it seems like it's wrong to treat anybody in those ways 
if they can suffer, if they can experience pain, if they can be harmed, so on and so forth. And if that's true, well, here's where the science comes in. And even just sort of common sense. Uh, many animals can experience pain. Many animals can suffer. Animals can be harmed. Things can go worse for animals. So, basically, you know, you think about what makes actions uh, toward us wrong. It seems to be because of various features of the actions. And these features seem to be uh, possessed by many animals as well. That sort of puts animals in the moral ballgame. And we have to think about how they're treated. Yeah, and what comes to my mind when we talk about this is to avoid that kind of conclusion, somebody like Descartes had to suppose that when animals look like and act like they've been harmed and they're in pain and suffering, uh, it's a really just kind of a machine reaction and they don't actually experience suffering subjectively. But that's very difficult to take seriously, I think, even at a common sense level, but certainly when we take into account the last uh, 80 years of scientific research in, in animals. Yeah, Descartes apparently thought that, and uh, he thought that apparently because he argued that since animals don't have language, they don't have minds, and since they don't have minds, well, they can't be hurt or harmed. And so if they appear to be, say, writhing in pain because they've been nailed to a board and cut open, I think he said it's kind of just like a, I don't know, the springs of a clock that are just sort of springing out all over. Mm -hmm. So it appears like they're in pain, but they really don't. Now, people have argued that actually Descartes' arguments really aren't, aren't any good, in particular by pointing out that, well, it doesn't seem like you'd have to have language to have a mind. And people have argued that, well, if that were true, then nobody could ever learn language. So babies would never learn language, but obviously they do learn language, so somehow they must have a mind pre-linguistically some sort of, there's something going on so that they can, you know, hear the word ball and see a ball and kind of put the two together. Mm -hmm. So people have argued that Descartes' assumption there is not true. Nathan, I want to ask you about a book called Putting Humans First, Why We Are Nature's Favorite, which is a book written by Tibor McCann or some, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, but something like that. That book is supposedly a defense of human-centric ethics, which is a very popular view among the average person, but it seems like it's not a popular view among applied ethicists and philosophy, because it, like you were saying earlier, it's very hard to understand why we would justify this sharp line between uh, humans and other animals scientifically. Uh, what are your thoughts on his attempt to, you know, put humans first in ethics? The, the kind of reasoning that I presented earlier, a sort of very rough case, sort of in favor of animals, you might put it, pointed to similarities between typical human beings and mammals and birds, at least. And the uh, similarity would be minds and the ability to experience pain and suffer, and having a kind of life that can go better and worse. Mm -hmm. So if you emphasize similarities, then that sort of bodes well for animals. Uh, from their point of view. So, if, for whatever reason or desire, you wish to resist this kind of reasoning, you need to focus on differences between all animals and all human beings. So, in response to the claim that 
you know, but just like us, animals can suffer and feel pain and their lives can go badly for them and go better and stuff like that. And so, therefore, it matters how we treat them deeply and, you know, we shouldn't harm them in ways that we would not allow for humans to be harmed. In response to this sort of reasoning, people have to say, well, but animals are different. And since they're different in important ways, it is okay to harm them in various ways. You know, it is okay to raise them and to kill them and eat them. It is okay to hunt them and experiment on them and skin them for their furs and stuff like that. I know this is all bad for animals, but it's okay because they're different from us in this sort of way. So the way people typically try to do this is they sort of point out that humans have sophisticated intellectual capabilities. So people point out, you know, humans are able to reason in sophisticated ways and make scientific discoveries, all these sort of cognitive achievements or cognitively based achievements. And they'll also point out a lot of times that, that humans are moral agents. That is, they think in moral terms, evaluate their actions in terms of the moral pros and cons, and choose accordingly. So they identify that as something about humans and point out that, well, animals don't seem to be like that and argue that since there's this difference, that justifies treating animals badly. And so uh, the animal advocates' arguments were unsound. So the Macon book is uh, in that theme. What's your reaction to that theme? I guess it's not clear to me why, say, the difference in intellectual capacity between chimpanzees and dolphins on one hand and humans on the other, why that would make such a morally significant difference. It's especially difficult if you're coming from a consequentialist point of view, because animals clearly can be harmed. Um, maybe it would make more sense if you're coming from a contractarian point of view because animals can't enter into social contracts or social agreements. A common response is to point out that, you know, humans can and do do many of those things, but you're being a bit imprecise because not all humans can do these sorts of things. Yeah. So people will point out um, newborn babies, babies, young children, very mentally ill or mentally challenged people, people uh, with Alzheimer's disease and dementia and things like that, on the basis of these cases, they basically say that, you know, if you're suggesting that a uh, being sort of has, I guess what you could call sort of loosely sort of moral rights only if they're capable of this kind of abstract thinking, abstract reasoning, moral reasoning, if you got to have that, in order to have moral rights, then it seems like there's a lot of humans, on your view, that don't have moral rights. You know, so on yeah. your view, it would be okay to uh, hunt down babies or, you know, fry up old people and you know shoot the mentally ill for fun uh, and put their heads on the on the wall. It seems like your view implies that, and that's a case where first people, many people, want to say intuitively, it seems like that would be wrong, yeah. and you even agree that that would be wrong, and to go beyond sort of mere intuitions, we can again point out that, you know, if you treated any sort of baby uh, or mentally challenged individual or anybody like that, if you treated them these ways, it would be very bad for them. You know, they would be harmed greatly. And so then we get back to this sort of fundamental category of harm, suffering, pain, loss, 
So this sort of reasoning has become so common that people have kind of given it a name, or given it a name, and they call it the argument from marginal cases. Yeah, it's it's an unfortunate name, and some people think that the idea can better be expressed by calling it the argument from species overlap. And the idea is that the uh, morally relevant features, uh, the features that determine how somebody should be treated, overlap different species. You know, the idea is basically that, you know, if it's wrong to harm these mentally uh, challenged or deficient human beings, then it would seem to be wrong to do that to comparably minded animals as well. Now, that's a very common objection. I hope Makan has something to say about it. Yeah, people uh, do try to respond to this. And one way they try to respond is by pointing out that, well, all right, yeah, I realize that not all human beings that intuitively have rights have these sophisticated mental capacities. But you know what? Normal humans do. And that's that's what we should look at, or kind of humans in general. How does this sound to you? Does this sound promising? Boy, I want to say intuitively no, but like I said before, I don't particularly trust my intuitions. I guess my initial argument would be the dividing line seems awfully arbitrary. I mean, why not group things in terms of primates instead of homo sapiens of the last 80,000 years, you know? Oh, good. What if you group them this way? Mammals. Yeah. Or you group them like, you know, sentient beings. Yep. Another way to respond to this sort of reasoning is uh, to just apply a little uh, logic and state the argument in what could be called sort of logically valid form. Mm-hmm. The first premise would be that it's normal for humans to have some characteristic P, or normal humans have this characteristic P. And then we'd have to have a uh, second premise that says something like, if normal humans have some characteristic P, then all humans have that characteristic P. So therefore, all humans have that characteristic P. And it seems like we can plug in lots of examples to show that in general, that doesn't seem to be true. Normal humans can see. That doesn't imply that all humans can see. Normal humans are able to make moral judgments. That doesn't imply that all of them can. This pattern seems to be an incorrect one. And so some people have argued that the correct way to think about things is when you're thinking about how some individual should be treated, you need to look at that individual, him or her or itself, and not at what groups that being belongs to. Mm-hmm. Well, Nathan, let's talk about your own views on these matters now. In what sense do you think that non-human animals have moral value or moral rights or something like that? I'm not real fond of using the term moral rights. I feel like that yeah. confuses people a lot. Yeah. So I tend to not really think about things in those sorts of terms. My approach to these sort of things is pretty broad. My basic stance is that uh, if we think about the various ways that animals are treated and thought about, well, would it be wrong to uh, treat any human beings of any sort of mental level in these sorts of ways? Uh, would we think it's wrong? And then we ask, well, what is it about these human beings that makes it wrong? There are a variety of plausible answers to that sort of question. And I think 
that variety of plausible answers will sort of get down to a core idea about it's harmful, it's bad for them, it hurts them, it sets back their interests. Basically, any plausible explanation for the human case is going to apply to many animals as well. So, and then the challenge is to try to identify some relevant difference between the cases. And as far as I know, nobody's been able to do that. And now it would seem like this should imply, for example, that we should all be vegans, that we should not eat meat, um, just like we shouldn't slaughter a bunch of humans <laughs> in order to eat them. Yeah, I think so. Although you might be on sort of firmer grounds if you say that this sort of reasoning would imply that animals ought not be raised and killed to be eaten. Uh, yeah, I think, we, I think we should be vegans. Now, what about animal research? Uh, we have pretty strict laws about what can be done when we are doing research on humans, but if animals can be harmed and therefore they have much the same value as uh, humans do, then you know it seems like there would be a problem with animal research as well, even though animal research can save millions of human lives. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, one thing people will say is, you know, there's just no alternatives. There's nothing else we can do. We've got to do this kind of research. And uh, a couple of replies to that are that, no, you don't have to do it. You could do something else. You could stop. Even if there's nothing else to do, you could stop. Second thing is that, no, there are other things that can be done. There are other ways to uh, try to improve human health. And arguably, many of these other ways are more effective, benefit more people than animal experimentation. Suppose you're doing some experiments on some children and uh, you say, no, I got to do these experiments because there's no other way I can learn what I need to learn to do whatever I want to do. Well, people might respond to that and, well, not might, hopefully would, and I think should respond to that. Well, you know, tough luck. Even if there's no other way to do something, that doesn't automatically mean that what you're doing is morally permissible. So, and of course, people argue similarly about animals. Now, when I think about animals, I think of Peter Singer's discussion of the expanding circle, where it's a kind of moral progress that we, you know, first we're extremely partial to our own kin, and then we started to uh, apply a moral value to maybe the tribe or the nation, or and then later, you know, maybe to everyone within our race, and then everyone uh, mm -hmm. within our species, and now mm -hmm. many people are starting to see the moral value of beings that are not part of our species. And uh, that's a very interesting development, and I wonder mm -hmm. if, you know, in 500 years, we're going to look back on our current practices with regard to animals like we now look back on our earlier practices with regard to say, you know, slavery or treating women as property or that kind of thing. Right. Peter Singer asked something like that, where he mentioned something about sort of the, the current challenges in ethics are to uh, identify those issues that hundreds of years down the road, people are going to say, how could they have thought that way back then? You know, how could right. they have been so naive right. in thinking that? I teach an introductory ethics course. And I frame that in terms of uh, our goal is uh, trying to make moral progress. And uh, the idea is to, again, identify those issues that down the road, people are going to wonder, how could they have thought that? 
So we want to be uh, ahead of the curve. Yep. And, you know, Singer thinks, and most, I'm going to say all good philosophers think, the way <laughs> to try to do this is to uh, identify the reasons for and against various positions and patiently, carefully, rigorously formulate them in their strongest forms and see if the arguments seem to be good ones or not. You know, it used to be that people thought, oh, I can treat her badly. Uh, you know, after all, he, she's not of my race. And, you know, everybody thought, oh, all right, that makes perfect sense. Not of your race, don't have to help them. It's even mm -hmm. okay to harm them. Yep. You know, and then more and more people started realizing, well, why does that really matter? I mean, I know she's of a different race. I know she's a woman, but, you know, this is still bad for her. She's still being harmed in ways that, you know, you wouldn't want to be harmed. So what's what's the relevant difference? Seems like it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I think it's extremely plausible that people who are vegans for moral reasons or who oppose animal research for moral reasons are just a, a couple decades or a couple centuries ahead of their time, and the arguments are a different matter, but I really can't see it progressing any other way. It's kind of like gay rights. I mean, it's kind of almost inconceivable that that's going to progress the opposite way. I, I appreciate the optimism. <laughs> I find the animal ethics issues interesting and different from most other ethical issues in that, unlike most other issues, there's a personal demand that's sort of related to the issue. Uh, I mean, you can talk about abortion and euthanasia and the death penalty and all these sorts of things, but by and large, uh, unless you're really unlucky, those issues aren't going to affect you in your daily life, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, th those issues might come up occasionally in your life, but animal ethics issues, they come up every day, you know, every meal, you know, thinking about what to wear and what kind of entertainment to uh, partake in and what sort of charities you might want to support and uh, things like that. So there's this pervasiveness that can make things personally challenging in a way that other issues I think generally aren't. Yeah, and research on, you know, drugs that are going to cure your grandma's Alzheimer's or prevent uh, heart disease or all that kind of thing, too. Right, yeah. So the fact that these issues are uh, so personal, well, that, that excites people, some people, and, you know, sort of they kind of rise to the occasion to uh, think about them carefully. Other people, I think they might have a kind of opposite reaction. They sort of realize that, well, it might be that if I think about these issues, that I might see that I have to change in various ways. And that might create some tension in their lives. And since people prefer avoiding tension, they uh, prefer to avoid anything that might create tension, or at least the willingly, knowingly approaching things that could create this kind of tension and demand. Yeah, I think that animal ethics is a far more demanding subject than most ethical issues. And so I think the adoption of respect for the value of animals, the moral value of animals, is going to be a lot slower than in other uh, areas, like uh, respect for gay rights or something like that. But I can't see it progressing any other way. You know, two centuries from now, I think more people are going to respect the value of animals than do today. Yeah, I think I definitely agree about that. Well, Nathan, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for uh, talking to me. In the next episode, 
I'll be interviewing Ron Mallon about experimental ethics. So stay tuned for more Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot.